All right, uh, this is Zach Bryan, and welcome back to They Live By Film. This will be our second special episode. Um, with me is Adam and Chris, and we are going to be doing our most pretentious episode ever, where we're going to be deconstructing and judging the top 20 on IMDb and comparing it to how it compares to uh, other lists, like, what is it, Letterboxd and everything else? So how are you guys doing today? I am <laughs> fantabulous, as the, as the kids would say. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, yeah, that that feels right. <laughs> to call it the most pretentious episode ever, but uh, the IMDb list is all over the place, so it's going to be interesting to kind of see how this conversation goes. Yeah, like we we sort of briefly talked about this before in in one of our previous episodes when we went on a bit of a rant about like other like sort of popular directors and stuff. So we we kind of touched on the fact that we can can be pretentious, not wholly so. You'll you'll kind of see that later on at some point. Um, that we're not we're not completely pretentious, but um. Yeah, we just we just think it'd be a fun episode to look through the list, com- compare it to, you know, um, sort of peer-reviewed lists. We're sort of mainly going to be looking at um, they shoot pictures, don't they? Because uh, that's like a huge sort of collective ranking of films. So we think that's going to give us our best sort of objective view on where the film should be because it takes in just so many lists from around the web and just sort of aggregates them into a big ranking. Yeah, and, and full disclosure, my life goal is to be included in one of the 13,000 uh, top 100 lists that, that goes into the weighted rankings for that. That'd be awesome. Even, yeah, if, if, if one of us or all of us can get in there, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Do you, do you know if you, if, does the person reach out and ask you? I don't. I, you know, I'm, uh, I think, you know, Zach, I, I know we've been talking about this behind the scenes, but I have a personal goal of getting you into the They Shoot Zombies list. Um, I started is, that, by the way, and I was top 100, and I got to about uh, 20, and I was like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, keep, keep going. As soon as you get to 100, I'm going to submit on your behalf. I, I think, honestly, I'm just, you know, whenever we feel like we're, we've, we've arrived, um, <laughs> whatever that means, uh, I'm just going to submit all, you know, all of our lists and just see what, what Bill uh, uh, from Australia does with it. It's just him and his wife that run that project. Fair. Happy days. Cool. Well, might as well jump straight in then. Um, okay, so starting off uh, at number 20 on IMDb, we got David Fincher's movie Seven uh, with Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman. So this is coming at number 20. Um, what, do, what do you guys think about that ranking? I know what I think about that ranking, and you guys know my feelings on David Fincher, so you probably know my ideas on the ranking. But where, where do you guys sit with that? Um, they shoot pictures has it at 501 and to me that feels high as um, in like high as in too, as it's in... too high it should be lower okay um, right so yeah. it's too highly ranked okay I, you know i there's there's no way this is the 20th best film of all time i i we, i know we're going to kind of summarize like how we feel about this list and how it gets you know you know organized at the end but th- this to me feels like something where it's a cool idea for sure and an interesting execution for sure um, and it's kind of surface level, like, you know, there's not like that much depth to it. Um, so I, I would struggle to put it in the top 1000, but, uh, but I get why people dig it. But, you know, if you're just getting in the movies and, and the last thing you saw was uh Hoobie Halloween and then you see seven, you know, you're like, Hey, this is pretty different. This is pretty unique. So I, I think I could get giving it a high ranking. It's one of those gateway drug movies, isn't it? When you're trying getting into totally. cinema, Fincher again, one of those gateway drug directors. When you're like getting into cinema, totally. 
Well, uh, Chris would hate my top 20 already. I By the way, on Letterboxd, it is uh, 4.3 out of 5. Okay. Um, I struggle to go back and forth with Fincher. My top two of him is Sevens included, but the other one is Zodiac. Um, a lot Zodiac's of it, I great. think, has a lot of um, love for true crime stuff. I grew up with that. I, I, I'm into it. I love it. Uh, I watched all that stuff with my mom growing up. Um, I will agree that it's a very surface level film, but it's nice and gruesome. It's um, one of those ones that people like to debate whether it's a horror movie or not. I'll throw it in there just because I think it's fun. But uh, yeah, um, I can understand why you guys wouldn't want a top 20, though. When it comes to Fincher, for me, it's either this one or Zodiac. And I would definitely go with Zodiac over that. I think Zodiac and The Social Network are probably his two best, like in terms of like pure filmmaking standards, they're like his two best films. Um, yeah, like we said, I think Seven and, and David Fincher is he's one of those sort of gateway directors, and we'll come across a lot of those in this list. Um, just one of those gateway directors where when you get into film, um, you know, like you said, when you compare it to other sort of mainstream stuff, you kind of realize, oh, wait, this is what good movies are. And then that's probably why it gets such a high ranking, um, because people compare it to like a run-of-the-mill thriller. You know, if if we're talking about David Fincher movies, um, I, I would put The Game up there as probably one of my favorite of his. I like yeah. The Game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one I don't love just because I wanted more of a game aspect. Like there's two, and I'm not going to get too far into this. There's two really good parts of it, like uh, talk vaguely. The part about like the uh, window thing where he has to figure out what that piece is. And I think that's mm-hmm. really cool. Mm-hmm. But at the end, it, it's kind of a nice little like gotcha moment at the end, but it does for me. It doesn't really work on rewatches as well. Interesting. Yeah, I, I just got that arrow. The the Bridge and B uh, arrow release, Arrow Academy. Oh, yeah, that looks that looks great. Uh, it's beautiful packaging, and I remember liking the movie. So I'll let you know. I might hate it on rewatch too. <laughs> I have good memories of it. Cool. Well, I suppose we move on to number nineteen then, which is probably getting into more um, more film buff territory. So number nineteen is Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. So I think this is this is kind of a film that it's not my favorite Kurosawa, but when I think about its importance in film history, and I, I do, I know it's easy to try and just be objective or subjective when it comes to this kind of stuff, but I do kind of have to think objectively at the same time and think of its importance in cinema. And I think this being in the top 20 is pretty fair. I don't know if you guys agree with me. I think it's like, I wouldn't want to say it should be here. It should be there. But if I think of like, not necessarily a personal list of, of my top 20 films, but like, if I'm going to talk about the 20, say most important films ever made, I think this being in the top 20 is pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's they shoot pictures has it at number 10. Um, and I think either one is, is totally fair. Like, you know, kind of like, I think you alluded to this, but when you start talking about the top 50 movies of all time or top 100 even, like, it's a lot of subjectivity in that, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, that, like, there's no way you can say, like, definitively number 19 or something like that. But I'm, I'm fine anywhere this is on a list of a top top 20 for sure. Mm-hmm. On uh, Letterboxd, it's a 4.5. Um, so it's a little bit up from 7. I know Chris is surprised. <laughs> um, yeah, like I have, actually haven't watched Seven Samurai probably since I was in high school. I probably need to revisit it, but I re- I really liked it when then, so I'd probably like it more now. Yeah, it's one of those films that, are, even though it's long, it doesn't feel long. It's fun. It's kind of like 
another film that will come up to later on, um, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, where even though it's a long film, it never really feels long because it's it's so fun. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth watching. I think for me, like, and the, the thing I've always loved about Hidden Fortress, Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, and Sanjuro is they sort of, they, they're, they're basically like adventure movies, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're so fun and easy to watch. Like he, he has a certain part of his filmography that really seems like it's a John Ford film, like his take on a John Ford movie. And then, you know, Spielberg came along later and made a lot of movies with this sense of adventure as well. And it's just, yeah, I love it. Like I, I think that these, you know, they're just like, you can pretty much put it down with anybody at any given time and, and they'll have fun with these with these movies. And Seven Samurai is the most well-known out of all that bunch. Yeah, I think it's like there's a reason why so many Western directors took a lot from Kurosawa. And it's, yeah, it's Seven Samurai is, is one of the most obvious examples of, of when, you know, like obviously it was pretty much remade as the Magnificent Seven, you know. So it's it's one of those, Kurosawa is one of those directors and Seven Samurai is one of those films that even if you haven't seen it, so many of the tropes sort of originated here and the bug's life too right yeah a bug's life is a is, a, is also a uh, sort of semi adaptation or remake or whatever you want to call it so number 18 we got uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest from uh, milos foreman um now i'm gonna have to step back because i actually haven't seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest so i'm gonna let you guys take the reins on this one have you seen it zach Yes, I I love one floor of its cuckoo's nest. Yeah, it, yeah, I agree. Where where would you put it in in terms of a or how do you feel about it being in the top twenty? Oh, I absolutely think it deserves to be in the top twenty. It's not in my top twenty, um, but if you know if we're looking at IMDb as a list of things that like, how do you want to put it? things that you know most people can see and it'll give them a you know the idea should be to give them a good idea of what they like and stuff like that i think the good thing about one floor over the cuckoo's nest is you get um to me nicholson's best performance of his career i don't think that's that's it's my favorite performance by him uh nurse ratchet is one of my favorite villains in film um they now have made a tv show thanks to uh ryan murphy (laughs) that dude made a tv um, show of anything (laughs) <laughs> uh it's just i have no problem with it being in the top 20 i, I think uh, i think it could easily i wouldn't be surprised if i heard somebody pat it in their top 5 10 15 whatever yeah it's interesting to um to talk to other uh film directors and just other people that are like in the industry how much respect they have for mila schwarman uh and and just like like uh we, you know when we a few weeks ago the pot this podcast came out where we were interviewing uh, dennis bartok this guy who's been around cinema for his whole life and he brought up Amadeus as just like the film that just like blew him away. So like there's this sort of respect amongst filmmakers for uh, Milos Forman. And, uh, I, you know, to your point, Adam, about influence of filmmakers and kind of where it fits in history, I can't, I certainly don't want to have an opinion on that. I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, that's, you know, I'll, I'll go with the people that are in the industry and trust their opinion on that. Um, I, this was my favorite movie set in a, uh, you know, psychiatric ward for a long time until I saw Shock Corridor recently. And I think, there, there's a pulpiness and sort of a, um, a little bit more of a fun or not fun, <laughs> a little bit more of like an interesting kind of whimsical angle to um, the work that Sam Fuller does. And I, I, I guess I like it a little bit better. But anyways, this movie is amazing. I mean, I, I'm not going to debate it leaving the top 20. Um, yeah, it's I think it's got one of my favorite um, tone switches 
in film as well, like how quickly things change. And, um, you know, talk about Nicholson uh, all day, but also Brad Dorff, um, his character in that is fantastic. Seriously, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's 113 on they shoot pictures. Um, and that's, you know, again, really gets really hard to, to pinpoint exactly where it should fall. But to say it's number 18 on one list and 113 on another, it's essentially in the same ballpark. I think they both feel fine to me. And uh, it has a 4.3 on Letterboxd, which is equivalent to sevens on Letterboxd. I suppose just to give a bit of context then for the listeners, Chris, who may not be familiar with they shoot pictures, like one, some people might say, oh, 113, that's rubbish. Isn't this like a list of like 10,000 films? Oh, okay, great, great point. Yeah, we probably should have done that in the beginning. But so, so They Shoot Pictures is a list, and the most recent edition has over 20,000 films. And basically what it is, is there's this guy named Bill in Australia who has accumulated over the last 15 years, has accumulated over 13,000 top 100 lists from every country from critics, from bloggers, from anybody who's like in the industry that's made a top 100 list. He's accumulated them all and he's put them all into this, this you know, basic kind of mathematical algorithm he created that weights them and gives a point uh, to, to each one. And so based on how they, they score in his weighted ranking, they show up on this top list. And so if you think about that, to get in the top 1,000, it means that you're, it's still pretty impressive, right? Because it means that your your film has shown up on 13,000 critics from all over the world, different points in history, has shown up on their top 100 lists enough to where the weighted average of it, it, it puts it in the top 1,000 out of, out of 20,000 odd films. Yeah, so 113 is definitely not a slight <laughs> when you think of the greater context of the, of, of the format. Great, great point. That's so true. Cool. Cool. So on to number 17, um, which is uh, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Uh, I like Goodfellas a lot. I think it's a, I think it's a really, really great film. I'm not, a, I'm not again, kind of like Fincher. And I spoke to you guys before about Coen Brothers. Like, I'm not a huge Scorsese guy. Um, I don't I don't not like any of his films, but at the same time, I don't really actively seek out his films. But when I do watch them and the ones I have seen, they've always been really good. And Goodfellas is definitely one of those ones that is a really, really good film. It's really well crafted. It's the, the, yeah, the script is great. The, the, the characters are all, are all really, really great. Um, I don't know if I'd have it in my... Well, again, no, top 20 doesn't seem too bad, really, because it it, it's a really, really great picture. Well, what, what do you guys think of Goodfellas? Do you like Goodfellas? Zach, you um, take this well, one. I, I haven't kinda, seen it. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, I was going to say you take this one because I haven't seen it in, in 20 years and my memory of it is kind of light. So um, I don't want to say too much. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead. Uh, Letterboxd has it at a 4.4, which would be second so far from what we've had right behind um, Seven Samurai. I like Goodfellas. I don't. I, I want to put that out there. Um, I think it's a good movie. I think, as, you know, it plays kind of as a fun antithesis to The Godfather because they they're giving very different perspectives of the Italian mafia and all that good stuff. So they're kind of interesting to watch back and back. Cause we're going to get to the Godfather. I'm sure here pretty soon. Um, it's not my favorite Scorsese film by far. I, I don't think it's, you know, as good as I think Goodfellas is, I think it ends up on the top 20 because of how fun it is. Um, I think, uh, you know, you have great Joe Pesci performance, Ray Loetta, all of them are great in it. Um, but you know, I wouldn't put it above, um, the silence or, 
Taxi Driver or uh, Bringing Out the Dead. Um, those are usually my three top Scorsese films. But I think it's good. I think it's fine. I think it's a. I think it's a good film to watch. Um, I think it's a good introduction to Scorsese, if nothing else. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say that it's number sixty-eight on the shoot pictures. So um, we we seem to be in some some kind of loose alignment here. That it's not it's not offensive to have it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, next one I think will be controversial. At uh, number sixteen, we have uh, the Matrix by the Wachowskis. Um, this is probably the first one that we've come across now where I'm adamant that this film should be nowhere near a top 20 list it was revolutionary for its time in terms of a special effects but the plot is just like someone flicked through a philosophy book once and said i'm going to try and make a sci-fi film out of these ideas and yeah you know keanu does keanu things the action's kind of cool even though it hasn't really aged amazingly um the, the action sequences but yeah, it's. I think this film is just fine. Like it's, it's not bad, but it's just it shouldn't be anywhere near a top twenty. Um, it so they shoot pictures has it at two ninety one, um, and I feel like that feels a little too high for me. So I, I remember when I was, um, I don't know if y'all are old enough to remember this, but I remember driving around Dallas area before the Matrix came out, and they had this really innovative advertising campaign, saying like, "What is the Matrix?" And it was just, it sounds so simple, but it was extremely effective because before people knew it was a movie, before people knew it was anything, they were, they were willing to plaster big cities with these billboards trying to get hype around this idea of like what this is. And they used the internet early on to sort of gain hype for the movie. And it worked. Like it, it just kind of caught the, the, the country by storm, right? By the time people figured out it was a movie, they were, they'd, there was people kind of just got obsessed over figuring out what this was and the themes and like everything. So by the time the movie came out, they, it was a masterful job of building towards, uh, it, it was like a big event basically, right? It was much more than a movie. It was a big event. And to deliver a film that's above average after that big hype, I think people just like fell in love with it because it wasn't like a bad movie, right? Like it's not, I agree the special effects have an age disgrace and like, you know, whatever. But it wasn't a bad movie. Like it was, it was a well-made film, really pushed special effects, kind of like um, James Cameron, what he does, right? Like the, the stories aren't really the point of a James Cameron movie. It's sort of like, it's Titanic, it's about the history. If it's Avatar, it's about like the kind of special effects that he creates. Like I feel like for me, they fit into that category of people that are using a decent story and, and pushing the envelope of, uh, of what can be done from the visual medium. Uh, and they unfortunately they didn't carry that out for the rest of their career I don't think but uh, this this matrix stands alone in that and I you know the other films aren't on here for a reason I think they struggled to finish the series I think if we're looking at this as a single film that would have probably been higher for me but the the movies get harder and harder to watch I think as they go along as well um letterboxd has it at a 4.1 which I do think is a little bit more fair I still wouldn't give it a four personally um I think it's a movie with a ton of potential. I think it's got a lot of interesting ideas. It has a lot of interesting um, aspects to it, but I hadn't seen this movie in probably 10 or 12 years. And I really don't have a wanting to rewatch it um, anytime soon. Um, I remember a pretty good amount. It's, I guess that means a lot that you can still remember something 10 or so years later, but yeah, it's, it's fine. I think I think a lot of it comes from um, the reason it's ranked so high is because this coming out in 1990, 
IMDb was probably starting to get some traction, at least a little bit of traction at the time as a web browser, because I think it came out in the early 90s. Um, not a web browser, but a website. Um, and I think that I think that skews this, and I think uh, we'll get to another one that I think it's kind of skews that result a lot higher, um, simply because it was a really big movie at the time. The people using IMDb just really liked it, and it's just kind of stayed there because of that. Mm. Is it better than seven? I don't think it's better than seven. No, it's not better than seven. <laughs> okay, no. that's cool. I'm glad you guys are in agreement with that because not just IMDb, but obviously they shoot pictures has it a lot sort of higher than seven, and I don't think it's better than seven. So, <clears throat> number fifteen, which is yeah, it's one of the, it's probably one of my one of my favorite films to watch in terms of like the nostalgia value and everything like that, and that is. Uh, Irvin Kirshner, who you would forget he directed it because it's so synonymous with another man. It's uh, Star Wars Episode Five: Empire Strikes Back. Um, like, I am the biggest Star Wars fan. I love Star Wars. I've loved Star Wars since I was a kid. My first, One of my earliest memories is going to see The Phantom Menace on my fifth birthday. I love Star Wars. It's not the 15th best film ever made. No Star Wars film should be anywhere near the top 20 of best films ever made. But I love Empire Strikes Back, and I think this is where we're kind of seeing the list become skewed towards popularity rather than rather than craft and you know how good the actual film is as a from a filmmaking standpoint. Uh, but yeah, I, I love Empire Strikes Back. I'm not going to say anything bad about it except for the kind of iffy time logic about Luke's training versus Han and Leia flying around. It doesn't really doesn't really match up. Um, but I, I'm, you're not going to make me say anything bad about Empire Strikes Back, so I'll let someone else take the reins. Um, we don't have to, luckily. So, so they shoot pictures has it at 283, which to me feels fair. Um, but if you look at Irvin Kirshner's career, I think that says enough. We don't have to say anything else. So he did Empire Strikes Back. Next film was a Bond movie, Never Say Never Again, which was so um, uh, panned, I guess, and not loved, that his next movie was RoboCop 2, and that was the only thing he ever directed again. I bet Zach loves that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> though, I will give this slight fun fact about Kirshner. Um, he got the job for Empire Strikes Back because of his movie Eyes of Laura Mars. And okay. George Lucas loved the screening of that movie so much, he asked him to direct the second Star Wars movie, which I think is really interesting and random. I just always think like with the with the ego that George Lucas has, it must kill him that the only movie showing up on top list is one that he didn't direct. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Well, I I can't even remember who directed Return of the Jedi. It wasn't Lucas again. It was supposed to be David Lynch, and then he did Dune instead. I think it's Christopher Columbus. I don't think it was Christopher. No, I'm Columbus. Just I was <laughs> gonna is, say. That's our go-to for. Uh, Richard Marcand. Okay, yeah, just, I, yeah. I have no idea who that is. I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have come across him before. I'm I was looking at his filmography. I don't recognize anything. Okay, fair. It must just again one of these sort of studio stooges where Lucas knew he could just sort of pull this guy's strings and just got him in. Um, I suppose it's kind of like the MCU effect with sort of Kevin Feig, you know. He gets these sort of he gets these like up and coming directors because he knows that he'll be able to sort of you know pull their strings, which is fine. Um, like I'm I'm a big MCU fan as well. You're not gonna hear me 
shitting on that either. So, um, yeah, it just seems like probably one of those things where Lucas wanted someone in who he knew he could sort of, you know, direct them on where he wanted to go vision wise. What, what's the letterbox on this? I don't know if I ever, did you say the letterbox? Forgive me if it, you did. It's a 4.4. Um, a little high for me. I, I'm yeah. not the biggest Star Wars fan, granted, but yeah, 4.4. <laughs> Even as a Star Wars fan, I can look at things objectively, and yeah, it's probably a bit high. Um, okay. Um, well, I suppose we go from one huge franchise to another huge franchise. Coming in at number 14 is the second Lord of the Rings film, The Two Towers, obviously Peter Jackson. So, now this is my this is my favorite Lord of the Rings film. And, and all, all, all three will show up on this list, just as a bit of a spoiler warning. Um, all Should we just talk about up. all three now? <laughs> yeah, actually, let's just get it out of the way. So, yeah, number 14 is The Two Towers. Number 10 is Fellowship of the Ring. And number 7 is Return of the King. And I would kind of have all of those backwards, maybe. Fellowship and Return of the King maybe is kind of hard to judge. I think the problem with Return of the King is that the film should be like half an hour shorter because exactly. the ending just doesn't know how to end. But I think Two Towers is the best of the three easily, personally. I do too. I love Two Towers. Um, And you, just to speak kind of generally about Lord of the Rings, um, I love Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, I'm extended, extended uh, edition sort of guy. Yeah. Um, While I could my bias is going to be, I at least to think at least one of these in some way should be in it just because of the craft and the, um, the, the passion behind it. And you can see that passion just dwindle away with the Hobbit, but Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, you can just feel the passion in a project that cost so much money and was such a big deal. Um, I just love it. I, I'm a huge fan of it. I would also put two towers first Fellowship has grown on me on rewatches as I've gotten older, but I'd probably still slightly put Return of the King above it just because I just like the battles. And I, then I was about to Fellowship. say, I think I think Fellowship kind of gets a short straw because of battle bias. There's no like huge battle in Fellowship. There's only really like the fight with the Urukai at the end is the only yeah. real battle. So I think the other ones get kind of battle bias because Two Towers, there's like, yeah, Helm's Deep, it's fucking awesome. And then obviously with Return of the King, you have the Pelennor Fields. Again, awesome. And it kind of gets battle bias in, in that sense. Um, I would I would, I would, kind of struggle to decide because I, I agree, Fellowship I think is really cool, especially the, the Minds of Moria scenes. Mm. Um, I think they're they're really, really well done. Um, yeah, and when you talk about like just pure cinematic scope of these films, you know, from what Peter Jackson was able to achieve by taking these books that were deemed unfilmable, and really doing a great job at, at, at adapting them um, just in terms of like the pure scope and, and even going beyond what's in the books. You know, a, a lot of the stuff that's in the films are is way more cinematic than, than what's in the books, some of which is pretty mm-hmm. low key, especially some of the battles. So I have, I have a major respect for them. I'm not I'm not going to say that they're in, they should be or shouldn't be in the top 20, but I, I have a major respect for what Peter Jackson was able to achieve with the films. Yeah, I have, I have a I was a bit obsessed with um, uh, Tolkien for a while, and the you know the Lord of the Rings books I definitely grew up with, and so you know when I found out that the guy that directed Bad Taste and Dead Alive <laughs> was gonna make was gonna translate them into a, a movie, I remember thinking like, okay, this is either gonna be really great uh, because he can capture kind of some of the horror in the battle, or just like really bad. Like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> 
Um, that part in uh, Fellowship where Bilbo um, like turns when he sees the oh, ring yeah. after like oh that that is like the scariest thing. Scared um, <laughs> me to death as a kid. Yeah, same same here. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the beauty. Like I think he brought in a weird way, as cinematic and grand and scope that everything was, he brought a very like handheld kind of feel to a lot of the scenes as well, which I think it needed, right? Yeah, he, like he like he pulled back to show the 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 weight and like the magnitude of everything that was going on. But he also like zoomed in really well on like the individual. It's a personal person. story for so many characters, and you know I think that's a bad habit of a lot of big epics. Is we want to show you the spectacle, but ignore what the movie is really about. And I think that's why Lord of the Rings has resonated with people still. Is yeah. Because of that. Yeah, I you know the last forty minutes of of uh, Return of the King is so <laughs> bad. <laughs> Um, I, I I blame that on Tolkien, but yeah, I wish he had done some changes there. Yeah, just not just, and just just cut it out. Like you don't need it, you know. Just yeah, he doesn't know where to end it. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, but I'm sure you know, paying respect and and what you know. He, anyways, I'm, I'm sure there's a reason it was in there. But yeah, I, as much as it pains me to say it, I don't think any of these movies belong in the top twenty of all time. But I, I could watch them anytime, and I'm like y'all, I'm an extended edition guy. Like I could watch six hours of each of these movies and. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to be angry that they're there, but I, I don't think they're the top 20 films of all time. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Who has somehow not seen the extended? Um, the secondary antagonist isn't even finished in the um, theatrical. Like you don't actually know what happens to him if you just watch the theatrical. Yeah, I, I was literally about to say this. It's insane that people watch this film and don't know what happened to Saruman. That's like the most insane part because I'd only ever seen. The extended. I didn't get. I didn't get to see any of these in theater, which I'm pretty bummed about. Um, but I, when I got the DVDs, I always got the extended versions. So I had never seen the theatrical ones until I had like gone to friends' houses and they had the just the theatrical versions. And I'm going watching Return of the King. Going, but they they skipped they skipped the bit with Sarah Man. What's going on? And yeah, it was the same when they came on. They came on to Netflix about two years ago. Here in Ireland, they came onto Irish Netflix all in one day, and I happened to be off work that day, and I was kind of sick, and so I wasn't doing anything. So I literally sat down at eleven a.m. and watched all three back to back, which was pretty wild. I did it. I did it more for the sake of I'm gonna tell all my friends I'm doing this, and then I got I got to the end of Two Terrors and like ah, uh, I, I just I need I need to finish what I started. It was kind of like Frodo and Sam. <laughs> Exactly. I need to finish what I started, um, but yeah, it was. It, they were the again. They were the theatrical versions, not the extended. So there's just so much, so much stuff cut out, which which is pretty crazy. Yeah, and I, it's a different ending than it is in the book. And I'm not going to get into the differences in the book. And there's a whole like if you want to think the end of Return of the King is long a movie, the book is way worse. Like they didn't even get into where um, the war goes to the Shire and all that. They they cut yeah. that out. Needed to be, but. Um, you know, it's just kind of weird because Christopher Lee was the pretty much the expert Tolkien guy on set. So it was kind of weird not to end his character because that was kind of the big thing for him was he loved Tolkien. He's the one that he, he apparently read until his death, read Lord of the Rings every single year. If they had a question about Tolkien, they asked him. Um, that was pretty much why he was hired and that. And he's a good actor. <laughs> Okay, well, I suppose we could probably talk about Lord of the Rings for the next three hours, so I yeah. suppose we better move on <laughs> at some point. Before we do, um, what's the rankings on these three? From Oh, yeah, good point, good point. Okay, so... I'm just curious to uh, see if they're in the same order. So the highest rated one on... 
they shoot pictures is gonna be Fellowship of the Ring at seven fifty five. Okay. Return of the King at nine hundred, and Two Towers at eleven ninety two. So they basically have it in chronological order. On yeah. The, high, the highest rate is the first. And okay. I actually, I know we're kind of done, like like editorializing here, but I just have to say, like, I kind of agree with that because I think the thing that, like, Fellowship of the Ring, I totally agree, it gets passed over by everything y'all were saying. But it sets the tone of like what you're about to watch is a faithful adaptation of this amazing Tolkien novel. And I think just that first hour is so important of capturing not only the kind of fanboys, fangirls, but then also making it interesting and, and engaging as just a general movie, which is so hard to do. Yeah. In a letterboxed, um, Two Towers and Fellowship are both at 4.3 and Return of the Kings at 4.4. Okay. So again, we're not really seeing any obvious correlation except for that the, t- the two towers is sort of rated at least at least sort of the same as fellowship and return of the king is perhaps better but um we're seeing on two different lists interesting interesting i suppose they're kind of like they're kind of like a series that you can't just you can't take one without the other they're obviously all three are integral to one another really so it's hard to sort of judge them separately too much Okay, so we'll move on to number 13, which is a film that is exceptionally important to me because this was my gateway drug into film as an art form, as serious cinema. Before this film came out, I just kind of watched movies for entertainment. I'm the kind of guy who would have gone and seen Transformers movies in the, in the theater. Like I, I've gone out of my way to see Transformers 2 in the theater before this film came out and it changed my whole perception on cinema, and that is Inception uh, from Chris Nolan. So I love Inception to pieces. I'm not going to sit here and say it should be in the top 20. It's in my top 20 purely for nostalgia and how important it was to me, you know, in terms of getting into film. And I still think it's an exceptionally well-made film, if obviously not perfect. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what you guys... I know we sort of talked about Nolan on a, a podcast a few weeks ago. and We sort of touched on, on Nolan as a filmmaker. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think of Inception. Um, I, I remember seeing it in theaters. Um, and, and, and similar experience to you, I was kind of floored. I, I thought about it for a long time after, uh, they shoot pictures, has it ranked at 1022 and, you know, I think, or 1022. And I think, you know, what this, what this film means to me is really hard to put like a ranking or a number on because I still like, I still think about that top spinning from time to time. Yes, like, the there's end. just, you know, like, yeah, like. Early Christopher Nolan, like the following, Memento, except like you, you just you're watching this guy's career and you're like, who is this guy? He's amazing. Like he's a freaking genius. Like everything he does is interesting. And you know, I I, I don't know. I'm gonna be a little bit biased. I, at some point, I probably should go back and rewatch all these to see how they age. But I, I have no problem with somebody putting it in their top twenty. It's not it's not in mine, but but I'm not gonna fight it. I um. And just to put it on here, uh, on Letterboxd, it's a 4.2, so it'd be the second lowest we've had so far. Uh, so it's better than The Matrix, don't worry. Woohoo! Um, I, Inception's one I struggle with because I love the concept of it. Like, how well the world is put together and how visually appealing the special effects are. I just find the characters tremendously hollow. And that's a problem in a lot of Nolan films, but I yeah, just feel sure. it so much in Inception. Like, I just don't care. Like, it has Tom Hardy, who's one of my favorite actors. It has Leo. Um, you know, it's it's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's, it's got a great cast, and I just don't care about any of them. 
yeah, I think that's a, a you highlight that's a problem in a lot of Nolan's films. His his characters are often there a lot to just to serve a function. It's it's more so obvious in Tenet because the main character is literally called the protagonist. He doesn't have a character name that is he's billed as the protagonist. But I think in Inception, it, it they all sort of. They kind of have, it's kind of like in a slasher movie. You know, the way you have the bimbo, you have the jock, you have the nerd. In Inception, they kind of have that too. They have the architect. They have the mm-hmm. the Tom Hardy's guy who was kind of like, I can't remember what they, what title they gave them all, but they all had like these specific titles and they were in these, these were, they were sort of pigeonholed into these roles and this was their role. This was their function in the film. I think Dom Cobb, who was Leo DiCaprio's character is probably the most in-depth because obviously he has that, his his character has that sort of um, internal struggle with coming to terms with his wife's suicide, which is probably his fault. Um, so I think there is a bit of depth to his character, especially towards the end, where people probably pay too much attention to the spinning top when they should be kind of more thinking about you know Cobb's character has kind of come full circle here, and and he has overcome his issues that were, you know, that were that were there throughout the film. So I think Leo's character is probably probably with the strongest but the rest of them do very much fall into this is your function this is what you're in this film to do you don't have any depth other than that kind of way i still love the film though it's 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 oh yeah it's so well crafted Um, it's so well crafted especially like sorry go ahead no i was gonna say it's just interesting because after this nolan kind of becomes kind of decisive among people who talk about his films after inception. Like I like interstellar more, but I have seen so many people despise that movie. And I get that. Like it's a extremely flawed movie, but I like Matthew McConaughey and I like his character a lot more than the ones in inception, even if it's not as I guess tight of a script or tight as a concept. Yeah. And interstellar is, is good. I've nothing, I've, I've no qualms at interstellar again. It's not perfect. Um, but it's really, it's, it's really well crafted. I think you can probably say it about every Chris Nolan film in terms of the technical aspect. It's so well crafted. I really respect his, you know, his want for to always try and do everything as non CGI as possible. You know, like an in inception, the hallway scene, he took a, a page out of Stanley Kubrick's book and literally just got a hallway and, got it spinning around while stunt guys were in there and um, like the hallway scene isn't cgi you have the the truck flip in the dark night where he said i'm just going to flip a truck you know i i respect him for that because a lot of a lot of major hollywood directors wouldn't do that they would go down the cgi route so i do respect him for being a bit more old school but after inception he became a very much of a concept guy it's all about the concept with his films and a lot of the time he becomes um too married to those concepts we talked about it before in an earlier episode with dunkirk how he became so married to a concept it 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 crutched the rest of the film and how it could breathe and sort of develop naturally so yeah again inception it's 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 not a perfect film i i love it for personal reasons but i completely understand why other people wouldn't have it in their top 20 Any more on the Where was it ranked at? 1022? Oh, yeah. 1022, yeah. Yeah, 1022. Yeah. Um, no, I, think I mean, that's I, fair. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's pretty fair. That seems fair. I, I think that, you know, I don't, again, I don't want to spoil it here for the end, but I think this is a great example of this list being geared towards, like, this IMDb list is kind of, you know, biased towards people that are discovering film, discovering interesting movies, and, like, people that just watch a lot of movies. And, like, if this is one of those ones you see early on, you're like, oh, this is 
this is different. Like, this is really cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of those films where when you're first getting into film, you kind of, it's like a watershed film where you realize, oh, this is what a good movie is. It's kind of, which, was my, which, which was my reaction to it, you know, going from just watching normal popcorn movies to sitting down in front of this and going, oh, so this is what a good movie is. This, then obviously, you know, developing tastes from there. Um, and we're going to move on to number 12, which is a film that I don't like. Um, and that's going to be a very, very controversial thing to say that I don't like. Uh, which is Forrest Gump from Robert Zemeckis at number 12. Um, what do we think of Forrest Gump? I think it's just kind of one of those nostalgic films, isn't it, that people just watch growing up and they like it because of that? Uh, oh, boy. Um, okay, so I guess just the facts, They Shoot Pictures has it at 492. Mm. Uh, it's okay. the top 20 there. Not better than Inception, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm a little bit biased. I, you know, I have. A, I don't know if y'all know this about me, but I have a master's in counseling, so I, I could. I could be a, a counselor, a therapist. I chose not to go that route, um, which is a different podcast. But, um, um, you know, any any film that depicts, like Rain Man, is another example of this. Any film that depicts sort of fringe mental health conditions um, typically does it poorly, uh, or or is at least pretty reductive in the way that uh, that they do it. And, and they use it a lot of times as like a bit or as like a way to, um, to tell a bigger story. I, I think there, I think the attempt was there to, to do it the right way with Forrest Gump. I don't, I don't want to make too much of it. Um, but, but I do think it was a bit exploitive. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's one of those films that as the, uh, so there's this like, you know, kind of guidebook or a Bible uh, that, that's used to diagnose mental health conditions. And every 20 years or so it gets refreshed. With, with the updated definitions and um, you know, I, I, I think that they, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to be a little biased against this movie just for the way that they used a, a character with a limited, you know, kind of mental capacity um, for, for a lot of the storytelling devices. And I think they're trying to even say it as like in a, um, like, look what he was able to do kind of thing. Like, I think that was like a big theme here of like, look what somebody with limited ability was able to do. Um, but I just, I don't know, I guess this is a kind of a bit of a sore topic for me. I, I don't like it when that, when those kind of things are exploited. And I think they, uh, I, I think this is a bad example of that. Like just to kind of get an emotional reaction and like, uh, like a sent just for sentimentality sake. And, uh, I thought it was a bit cheap. So I guess I'm going to be down on this movie a little bit more than some others. I'm really glad you said that. That's, that's exactly how I feel. And I'm glad you brought up the word exploitative because, and I don't feel it's exploitative. Well, it is exploitative of the fact that, you know, he's mentally disabled. Um, and I think it's exploitative in another way as well, and that's emotionally exploitative. I don't know if you guys have seen the series This Is Us. It's a pretty big series over in the States. I can't remember what channel it's on, but it it works in a similar way to this film, that everything that happens is specifically designed to get the biggest emotional reaction out of the mm -hmm. viewer. Mm-hmm it's nothing really happens because you know it's good for the story or it should happen organically it's the writer sat down and said how can we make the viewer feel sad or feel happy or yeah. feel or want yeah. to cry it's it's specifically designed to exploit emotion from the viewer which is fine if you're maybe telling you know a sad story like and like a holocaust story that we'll get to later in the list but when you're doing it specifically to literally to, to make your film 
to try and ingratiate the film onto people just by trying to elicit an emotional reaction, then you sort of lose cred with me. That that's that's how I feel about the film. So I'm probably going to end up being the slightly more positive one. Um, uh, Adam, you mentioned nostalgia. This is definitely nostalgic for me. This was, uh, you know, this came out in '94. That was the year I was born. So I grew up with watching this film a lot. Um, I definitely feel what you're saying. You know, I work with I work with kids for a living. I work with kids who've dealt with certain things. So I understand the idea of exploitation that you were mentioning, Clarice. The only thing with the exploitation and emotion is I, that doesn't really bother me because I think all films, to some degree, are designed that way. I think that's the point of film is to emotionally manipulate you um, to a degree. So that doesn't really bother me too much. It, it's definitely melodramatic, and I think it's designed to be. Um it's good. I, I wouldn't put it in my top 20, top 50, or probably even my top 100 or 250 or whatever, but I like it just fine. Um, I think it's a good snapshot in the views of that time, um, because, I mean, obviously the sensibilities we have of these 27 years later is a little bit different than we would have then, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I will say that, you know, Bob Zemeckis did uh, Romancing the Stone, the Back to the Future movies, um, and and Death Becomes Her right before this, and all of those I would I would happily put uh, <laughs> above Boris Gump. I, I do agree with that. <laughs> I hate Death Becomes Us. Is that is that that's the one with um, Goldie Hawn and is it Goldie Hawn? No, that's as Death Becomes Her. Sorry, that's yeah. yeah death, death Becomes Her is Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn's in it. No, no, yes, it's a, it's yes, a, it is Goldie. Yeah, Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep. That's a terrible movie. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I see your one star on Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah, I watched. I had to watch. My girlfriend made me watch that a few months ago. That was that was dreadful. <laughs> it was just the most anti-feminist movie ever. Um, Maybe I'll have to go back and rewatch it. I have yeah, good memories. It's it. basically just Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn fawning over Bruce Willis, who is in no way a good character either. He's just this. He's just this horrible little dweeb of a character, and they're both fawning over him the whole film. It's very, very anti-feminist in my opinion. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> what, what was the letterbox on this one? Sorry, before we move on. On oh, Forrest Gump, uh, four point one, I believe. I, I exited out of it. That's the new lowest, I think. Then is it from what we talked about? It's tied with so the far? Matrix. Tied with the Matrix. Okay, so we have a gamble on below a four, and I'll be, I'll be surprised. Looking at the rest of this, I'll be surprised if we go below a four. Um, but we'll go on to. Yeah, we'll go on to the next one, which is another David Fincher film, one that I loved when I was a teenager and despise now because it's, it's yeah, we'll go into it. It's uh, Fight Club. Um, I, I won't start this time. What, what do you guys think of Fight Club? Uh, I'm a huge Chuck Palahniuk fan. Uh, he's one of my favorite authors, so I guess I'll take it. Um, uh, it's got a 4.3. Um, as far as, you know, I, I agree with you, Adam, uh, that this was something I loved, especially when I was a teenager as I got older and I still rewatch it and I still enjoy it for what it is. Um, it's definitely, it definitely loses its message within, which is supposed to be the idea that, you know, toxic masculinity and, uh, domestic terrorists are, are bad, but Tyler Durden kind of becomes this, uh, icon that he isn't ever supposed to be. So that's kind of interesting to watch now. Um, but, the book is actually pretty interesting to read. I like the movie better, which I think Chuck Palahniuk also agrees with, since he didn't come up with the famous twist until he was two-thirds done writing the book. But uh, 
yeah, it's it's fine. I wouldn't put it in my top anything, but you know, I don't hate it. <laughs> I just liked it more years ago than I do now. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat about the the sort of mixed messages that it brings across, especially the toxic masculinity. That's a huge, huge point about this film. And also, apparently, the film is supposed to be anti-consumerist while plastering brands <laughs> every five seconds. Like literally, I read. I don't know if this is true. I never actually tried to look it up myself, but apparently. There's a Starbucks coffee cup in every scene of this film. Yes, that's, that's yeah, it's a, yeah, that's the joke. Yeah, yeah, it's in every single scene. And like, that's all well and cool, but like, if you're trying to be anti-consumerist, like uh, that probably was huge for Starbucks. You know, that probably that probably gave them a ton of business rather than the opposite way around. You know, they bomb a Starbucks at one point, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. Which again, I, I they have the, the are they? I think they throw like a burning something true well, it's like the it's the statue ball i think it yes, crushes into that's it. Yeah. it yeah it crashes into the starbucks which is big and plastered and their logo is right there so you know <laughs> it's it's supposed to be an anti-consumerist film but yet i'd say starbucks and ikea paid them a ton of money to put all their shit in the film so yeah that rose me the wrong way as well uh, they live by film sponsored by starbucks and ikea <laughs> um, if they want to send me another billy shelf they surely can yeah seriously i need one too uh, um, I'll be moving into my new house soon, so I need all their shit. So, Ikea, send me free stuff. <laughs> um, 427 on They Shoot Pictures. Um, I, I think that feels right. To be honest, I yeah, again, I guess I'd have to watch it again. It's been over 10 years, but I don't remember having anything extremely terrible about it. I, I feel like it's another one of those movies that helps you kind of understand what can be done with storytelling in, in film. And uh, I, I think there's... You know, as you get more, I think as people watch more and more movies, I think like, you know, we just watched uh, Xiao Wu recently for the yeah. film club. And and I think that, you know, that nothing really happens in that movie, right? But so if you if I were to watch that movie at 18, I would have been pissed at it. I know for sure. And I would have liked Fight Club much better. But, you know, 20 years later, as, as just seeing so many more movies, I see something like Xiao Wu and it just feels like there's so much going on and the subtlety of the storytelling and the subtlety of the way that the characters interact. Uh, and, and so to me, that's like the difference, I think, of just depending on kind of how many movies you've, you've seen of where, where that stuff falls. Um, but um, yeah, I, it's not in my top 20. But um, yeah, I, I have no problem with it being with, with people liking it. And, and, you know, if they view it, rate it high, rank it high on, on uh, um, IMDb, that, that feels fair. Yeah, I think it just kind of falls into the same problem that Taxi Driver does. And I love Taxi Driver, but the idea that people don't kind of. And I, I agree with you, Adam, that they the, the message is kind of muddled in itself, but people who watched it made that message a lot more muddled. And it's the same thing with Taxi Driver, where people don't really get the point of what they're going for. And there is always blame for the uh, director for that as well, but it definitely gets um, highlighted more um, the with, holy, uh, with the audience holy, members. The holy trilogy of incel cinema is Taxi Driver, Fight Club and Joker has to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what was the letterbox on this side before we move on? 4.3. 4.3. Did you say that already? Apologies if you did. I don't think I did, but I've okay. said 4.3 a few times, so I can't remember. <laughs> cool. So we've already covered number 10, which was uh, Fellowship of the Ring. So we'll skip on down to number 9. Uh, which I, I mentioned briefly earlier, uh, Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Zach, I know you're a big Leone fan, so I'm going to let you start off with this one. Um, this has a 4.4 on Letterboxd, and that is way too low. <laughs> 
Uh, but no, it, it's it's a great film. It's you know it, you mentioned it earlier that it's uh, one of those films that is super long and but it never feels it. Like I, I can sit down and watch that movie many times. I have probably watched the final showdown on YouTube or other things like thousands of times. Uh, everything about it to me is just constructed so perfectly for such a low budget movie um, to, you know, everything from the score, from the scale, from the characters. It's just all fantastic. Yeah, it's an excellently crafted movie. It's it's not my favorite of the Dollars trilogy. Uh, Fistful of Dollars is still my favorite of the three. Um, but that's just more so from a, just a personal point of view. Like Good, Bad, the Ugly is... It's it's one of those sort of god tier films. I've no problem with it being in the top twenty. It wouldn't be in my top twenty, but I've no problem with being in a you know in a general top twenty. I've 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 zero problem with that. Yeah, just just to pile on the love here. So it's one thirty eight on they shoot pictures. I feel like that's too low. Um, I feel like Probably it's easily easily top one hundred at least. Anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there's I don't really have any flaws in this film that I can find. I mean, I I kind of like you, Zach. I you know, love Leone and, and I think that his what he's able to do as far as just keeping stories engaging and uh and do he does so much with silence uh mm. that that I just think he's he's wonderful. I love it. And I, I I mean yeah, we could either do a whole other episode just on Leone film or just on this film, but um this this feels right to me. Yeah. Um I suppose the question for for me, because obviously a few weeks ago we talked about uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, part of the film club. Is this better? I, I, is this better than Once Upon a Time in the West? Yes. Okay. <laughs> there we go. There we go, folks. That's the yeah. one uh, Leone film that Zach doesn't like. Um, I don't know. Once Upon a Time in the West is so cool, but this was, yeah, I don't know. It's maybe a toss-up for me, but depending on the mood, either one goes. Yeah, yeah. No, they're both they're both great films. Probably good value. Probably does edge it out just in terms of. There's less. Well, I can't think of any real flaws in it from a film, whereas I can think of flaws in Once Upon a Time in the West. So, um, number eight, we have another one of those big, sort of threshold-breaking films for people who want to get into film. Uh, Quentin Tarantino with Pulp Fiction. Um, Pulp Fiction. I like Pulp Fiction. I've no problem with it. Again, like other directors I'd mentioned, like like Scorsese and Coen Brothers and Fincher, I can kind of take them or leave them. Um, don't think there's been any Tarantino films I actively dislike. There's none that I absolutely sort of love. Um, although Pulp Fiction, again, sort of like Fight Club, was one of those ones I really loved as a teenager. Um, it was one of those, again, one of those sort of early serious films, if we'll call it that, uh, that, that I got into. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. Tarantino is just one of those directors that people get into really early in their sort of film journey. Um, yeah, what, what do we think of Pulp Fiction? I, I don't think it's perfect. I think the pacing is not great. The whole Bruce Willis subplot I don't think is very good. Um, what, what do you guys think of it? Um, so 64 and they shoot pictures. Okay, that's I think is a bit high for me personally, but okay. Yeah, I could totally see an argument that that's too high. I so Tarantino used to work at a video store in Austin, uh, briefly. He is somebody who is doing everything he can to promote film history and preservation. Like even in the references in his movies, the work he does outside of his movies, he's like a true sort of, you know, somebody who loves cinema 
that happen to have the ability and the the luck and the you know kind of mind to go make movies. So, I mean, in, unless he just starts producing absolute dog shit, like I'm gonna be a big defender of Tarantino, just just for like what he's trying to do, his mission. Uh, I think he's a quirky dude, uh, but but aren't we all? I guess on some level, um, Pulp Fiction. It being in, in, in people's top 10 list, it doesn't bother me. I, it's not in mine. I, I, you know, I think it's, it's almost like I view Tarantino as like the world's best cover band. Like they're still a cover band, right? Yes. Yes. Um, but he's, he's, he knows more about film than probably any, anybody in the world. I, and, and he just, he's probably seen more movies than almost anybody alive. And he does his best to kind of pull the bits and pieces from what he's seen and, and you know, make, make a coherent story out of it. And I think this is a fun example of, of that genre. On um, Letterboxd, it's a 4.4. Um, let me go ahead and get my hot take out of the way. This is probably one of my least favorite Tarantino. It's one of those movies I absolutely appreciate for what it did. I think it's incredibly influential. If we're going to go based on influence, Pulp Fiction is probably at the top, if not the very top, as far as how much it influenced the 90s and stuff uh, in that sense. But as you mentioned, Adam, I just don't care about most of the story. Anything with Samuel Jackson and John Travolta, that part's great. Everything else, I don't care. Like, it's the... When I want to skip half the movie, I just can't really sit there. It's not the one I rewatch. You know, if I'm going to watch a Tarantino film, it's going to be Jackie Brown or Django Unchained or even Reservoir Dogs. Um, I think those are much stronger. Inglorious Bastards. I'm a I love Inglorious. Honestly, a there's Glorious not a Tarantino Bastards. I dislike, but yeah, yeah, just Inglorious Bastards is one of my least favorites. Yeah, Inglorious Bastards is kind of underrated, I think, and is overall because of how much how much uh, foreign uh, languages are in the film. I think like seventy percent of the film is in either French or German, so a lot of people sort of deter away from it based on that. But I think Inglorious Bastards is probably his best film, um, and I, I think even Tarantino probably thought that himself. I don't know if you remember the end of the film. <laughs> But it has Brad Pitt going into. I think this is. I think this may be my masterpiece. <laughs> so you know, Tarantino's a cool guy. He's a he's a fiercely intelligent guy, as you said, Chris. He he absolutely knows so much about cinema. I think the cover band aspect that you brought up is definitely definitely something that with him. And for me, I think he kind of oversteps the line between you know, homage and then the straight ripping off. I think he does it, I think he just does it a bit too much. Pretty much anything that a new film fan would say is innovative about Tarantino, he probably took from someone else and they were probably French. So um, you know, that's that's sort of my feelings towards Tarantino. Super intelligent guy, but a lot of the time for me he kind of oversteps the line of homage into straight up he's just ripping off stuff. I've always thought he's like the world's most interesting film history textbook. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem with it though is that a lot of his references aren't obvious. You would have to actively seek out what he's referencing to get it. You know, it. Yeah, that that's that's where for me he kind of goes into the line of, you know, okay, Tarantino, you've seen films and you're just taking stuff from random sort of French films or random Japanese or Chinese wuxia films that nobody else has seen, and you're just kind of making them into your own film. Um, so yeah, like I have no problem with Pulp Fiction. It's fine. I don't. Yeah, the whole Bruce Willis subplot for me is definitely the weakest part of the whole film. The dialogue is incredible in the film. I love the dialogue. It's some of the most quotable, some of the most quotable dialogue ever ever put the film is in Pulp Fiction. So yeah, 
it's, it wouldn't be in my top 20 or my top 100, but, you know, I can understand why it's there. Um, we already covered number seven, which is Return of the King. Um, so we'll skip that. Next one is another one that I'll have to stay silent for. It's uh, number six. We have Schindler's List uh, by Spielberg. I haven't seen Schindler's List. I'm just not. I'm very much not a masochist in the films that I watch. Anything that's too sort of dark, I just kind of steer away from because I just, I don't know, I just don't like putting myself through that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's no cannibal holocaust. <laughs> but what is? <laughs> but what is? Um, okay, so we were talking about emotional manipulation earlier. Mm. And I think, you know, we in, in our Discord, we have a member who's really big on, on being kind of anti-Spielberg because he's the king of emotional manipulation, kind of using music and using uh, dialogue to, to really manipulate the, the emotions of the viewers. And I think Schindler's List is probably top of the mountain of that. Um, but how do you talk bad about a movie that's trying to give an honest and, and, and harsh portrayal of, of one of the most troubling parts of recent history, right? I mean, it's... It's it's a relatively true story, right? Uh, to a lot of extent, and it's very well constructed, and it's heartbreaking, and it's I mean, how do you possibly shit on Schindler's List? I'm not going to be the one to do it. I, you know, <laughs> if it if it's in people's top ten, I'm not going to fight with them on it. Um, I, I'm glad that Spielberg's bringing some awareness to to some of these these um, horrible things that happened in the you know in the 40s and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's pretty much all I want to say about it. From you know, objectively, it's ranked two twenty three, and they shoot pictures. Um, Is it I, too high? Is it too high? Go on. I mean, I, I wouldn't put it in the top five hundred, but I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue with, with it. I, you know, how, how do you, how do you knock a film down that has that subject matter? <laughs> you know, it's fine. Um, I haven't seen Schindler's List in a long time. It's a 4.4 on Letterboxd. Um, I remember really liking it. It's, it's, you know, when it comes to Holocaust films, I am not one who sits there and watches them a lot. It's not, you know, just, I've seen so much with it and it's not something I just like enjoy revisiting. Um, I can't remember the director's name, but you know, when it comes to like Holocaust films, the one who did, um, Life is Beautiful and, um, Boy in the Striped Pajamas. You want to talk about emotional manipulation? I think he might beat Spielberg in this one. But they're, you know, even with all three, they're all very, um, they're all very well put together. They, um, it, it's it's got a lot. And you know, for Spielberg, it was a big deal, obviously, because he hadn't won an Oscar at that point, and a lot. I think he had actually already gotten like a Lifetime Achievement Award because I think the assumption was he was probably never going to get one. And he came out with this and Jurassic Park in the same year, and probably could have won for either one of them. But obviously, you're probably going to give it over to the Holocaust over dinosaurs. <laughs> Holocaust or dinosaurs. Hmm. Okay, so then at number five, um, we have 12 Angry Men, uh, Sidney Lumet. Um, I haven't seen 12 Angry Men in so, so long, I'll be honest. It's probably been about 10 years since I've seen 12 Angry Men, so I'm kind of struggling to remember most of it. I remember it being a really, really great film. And like I had to watch this in like English class in 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 high school, um, so to get you know a bunch of and I remember my whole class was engaged with it and to get a bunch of kids, especially me and my friends, we were we were we were big messers. So, um, to get a class engaged in a in a black and white film is pretty good going. So I'll, I'll give I'll give Lumet props for that. Um, yeah, 
12 Angry Men, do you guys have any sort of strong opposing or for feelings for 12 Angry Men? Okay, so they shoot pictures. It's 519. Um, I could easily see this being in the top 250 on, on they shoot pictures. I mean, if you talk about influence, I think this is a gateway film to black and white for, for a lot of people. Like like you said, you know, for your high school class, it there's there's a perception that black and white films are boring, and I think this really captures the audience well. Um, I would put some of Lumet's films or, or Lubitsch's films as ones that I would show people if they were hesitant to get into black and white. Um, and I, you know, maybe maybe I'm a little bit biased just because it was pretty influential on me doing doing exactly that, um, kind of learning to love black and white movies, which sounds so silly to say now, but you know, you go from Jurassic Park to uh, some slow moving character driven black and white story. It just feels like a leap. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think this is just, it has such a sentimental attachment for so many people and the story of one guy who can kind of just through patience and wit, you know, convince uh, 11 people to do something I think is even more impressive nowadays and as our countries and kind of society is getting more divisive. So, uh, yeah, I, five, maybe five was, we're at number five, right? Yeah. yeah number five. Probably a little high, you know, but being in the top 20, top, top 30 on people's list, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, it is ranked 4.5 on Letterboxd. Um, Henry Fonda's character completely bullied everyone in that jury room, and there should have been a mistrial and a, a, a retrial <laughs> for that. But <laughs> in all seriousness, it's a really great movie. Um, even if you want to ignore all the legal aspects of it, it's, uh, you know, it, it comes off a lot as like a play. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's very simple. It's a lot of great performances. It's very well paced, even just to take place in one room. Um, no, you're not really going to hear me complain about it. I, I think it's, you know, I'll joke about uh, the, the way the jury is portrayed, but as a story and what it means, it means a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I have no problems with it being in like the top 20 or 50 or whatever. 519 probably does sound a little bit low on the the, the sort of uh, they shoot pictures list. 519 does sound a bit low. Um, yeah. I suppose we go from one extreme to the other now we're kind of completely jumping off the deep end with number four which is another chris nolan film and it's the dark knight i like the dark knight i i like batman i like the dark knight i saw it in theaters it was a great film it's not the fourth best film ever made i'm just going to put this out there i'm sorry if you're listening and you you think it is it is it is objectively not the fourth best film ever made um what, what, what do we think of I know we're going to talk about this a little bit afterwards as to why we think the list is structured as this, but even from a perspective of recency bias, I just don't understand why it's this high. Do you guys have any inklings on this? Uh, the internet got really huge in 2008, and I think that's a lot of it. And I mean, okay, yeah. Batman's cool. And <laughs> I think uh, it had a ton of people like join these type of message boards. I don't know when the forums started, but I wouldn't doubt it if it was around this time as well. Just people talking about film on imdb and it got tons of 10 out of 10s yeah the uh the mystique around this movie with heath ledger you know passing and and the, the people saying it's one of the greatest villains of all time and like you know i i just think that it, it captured the imagination and it is a very watchable film uh yeah, sure. it's not hard to watch and uh yeah like you were saying zach i think people just you know it's so easy to quick click like a rating and after you just watch it, I think the impact of that movie is going to be like, yeah, nine, ten, you know, whatever. It's not, it's not a bad movie. And even if, you know, I don't think it ages quite as well. And, and where the Dark Knight series, like, trilogy kind of went, it went to some ridiculous places. But, um, you know, this is, 
I think it's another one of those ones that's very watchable. Uh, I have Begins is better. You what? Batman Begins is better. Heard it here first. Okay, um, that's a hot take, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I think Heath Ledger's Joker is what elevates Dark Knight, but I think as like story structure and everything else, Batman Begins is better. Yeah, Dark Knight's Hell is not the best pacing. I think I told you this story before, and I think I maybe even mentioned it when we were talking about Chris Nolan before on a previous podcast about how when I saw this in the theater and after the Joker gets captured after flipping the truck, my friends got up to leave. And I was like, I don't think the film is done, guys. And there's like an hour left of the film after that. So <laughs> I, I definitely don't think it's the most well-paced film in the world. And, and The Dark Knight Rises is even more guilty of that. Yeah, I have no idea where I put this in my list. It wouldn't be in the top 20. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be in the top 100 for me, even 200 probably. It's no. a 4.4 on Letterboxd. I can't remember if I said that or not. Uh, no, I don't know. I what, think... it, what is it on uh, yours, Chris? They Shoot Pictures has it at 6.06. Um, no, sorry. Even no. that feels like a stretch. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, if you talk about cultural impact, it, I think it's similar to The Matrix and cultural impact. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm just trying to look and see what's it what's it better than. So apparently it's higher than both the two towers and Inception, significantly so. Um, and I don't think that's I don't think that's right, um, personally. Okay, we we can probably talk about the Dark Knight all day. So we'll we'll move on to we're going to do a double for number three and number two because it's The Godfather Part Two comes in at number three. And The Godfather comes in at number two, confusingly enough as it is. Uh, obviously, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Uh, now, I, uh, this might be film blasphemy. I've only seen the first Godfather. I haven't seen the second. So I can't really talk too much about that one. But We need yeah. to do a watch party and change that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the first Godfather is incredible. It's, it's an incredible achievement from a filmmaking point of view in terms of what Coppola was able to... Ju- just what he was able to um, to achieve with... With a book that wasn't even all that well received, you know, Mario Puso's book. It's you know, very pulpy, and I'll get into that. Yeah, in a how yeah. pulpy that book is. And he he made something very elegant, and he made it almost like a like if you look at maybe like a period drama and how they depict royalty and things like that. Coppola was able to get that same kind of feeling, you know, with the mafia in this film, and I, I think he does a great job of really making an elegant film after, you know, out of such pulpy material, and. Again, it's not in my top 20, but I have no problem with people putting these films in, in the top 20. Um, Zach, sounds like you have a lot to say about it. So if you don't mind, just quickly, I'll say Godfather Part 2 comes in at number 26 on They Shoot Pictures, and Godfather comes in at number 7. Um, I think it just goes back to influence. You know, it, this these films have been sort of paid homage to they've been parodied they've been they, they're just a part of of culture they're part of the you know anybody who's ever seen movies has seen at least godfather one <laughs> i'll say that now um and uh uh or, or if you haven't seen them you can quote certain parts and certain scenes and you know about them you know the names of the characters and you know he it, it it's uh, it's a movie that anybody can watch and enjoy and at the same time an artistically well-made film and that balance is, is just so hard to strike so I, I get it why it's ranked so high. And yeah, I mean, it's not in my top 20, but but I, I totally get why why they rank so high. Um, so on Letterboxd, uh, Godfather 1 is 4.6. On uh, Part 2 is 4.5. So it has in the same order, first and then second, which I know is contentious among people who watch the Godfather films. I do agree. I like the first one better. 
um, just to give a little background on how I got into watching The Godfather was I actually played the PS2 game first. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and then from there, I read the book and then I watched the movie. That's a crazy so way I did to go about that. Completely <laughs> backwards. Um, and I just want to give perspective of how pulpy, because I've read a lot of Mario Puzo stuff um, and I got it because I like The Godfather. I've read um, his Last On and stuff like that. He's he's a fun writer. Um, good, I, I wouldn't say that. I think he's actually a really good screenwriter. Um, but for novels, not so much. There is an entire subplot in the Godfather book. And they only kind of hint at it in the movie. But the girl Sonny is sleeping with that's at the wedding, she has an entire subplot in the movie. and the book, I mean. Where the reason she's sleeping with Sonny is because Sonny's um, very well endowed. And basically her <laughs> vaginal cavity is too wide. And she actually has to get surgery within the film, within the book to fix that and it actually goes into Johnny Fontaine because he had the same exact surgeon who can apparently do vaginal surgery and throat surgery it's that should give you a good perspective of what this book is like it's insanity <laughs> what the hell <laughs> <laughs> who even thinks of that stuff <laughs> Mario puts the best. Very good. But it, it also it, the movies are fantastic. I, I you know I don't have them in my top ten today just because I made a, I tried to make a little bit of a rule not to have too much overlap. Um, but normally, yeah, The Godfather is a probably a top five, a top ten movie for me, and I love the second one as well, even though I don't have it in my top twenty. But just I, I love The Godfather. <laughs> I always have. Yeah. Definitely, just like like Chris said, it's one of those um, one of those films that is just completely, you know, it's in the zeitgeist. People know about it even if they haven't seen it. Like, even if it's something as simple as like the I don't know if you guys have seen the Family Guy sketch where Peter says he doesn't like The Godfather. If you oh. haven't, if you haven't seen that skit, it's one of the funniest skits Family Guy ever did. It's pretty early in their run, maybe season four or five, and it's yeah. Peter says. He doesn't like The Godfather, and everyone just rips him for it. And his it reason for not upon it insists upon itself is his reasoning <laughs> for not liking The Godfather. It <laughs> insists upon itself. Uh, yeah, like even like even if you haven't seen like The Godfather itself, you just kind of know it exists, and you know the whole you know Marlon Brando. You come to me in the day at my daughter's wedding, expecting me to kill a man I do not know. Like it's just exactly. it's just one of those films that are just so ingrained in popular culture. That you just can't possibly ignore them. Exactly. Okay, so that brings me to number one. Oh, <laughs> I think this is gonna be fun. Yeah, this is this is one of my biggest pet peeves in in life. Why are that... you seeing your knuckles right now? Yeah, <laughs> this this is just this this film it, <laughs> being so well respected and so well beloved is just one of my biggest pet peeves. It's the Shawshank Redemption by Frank Darabont. And this film should be nowhere near anybody's top 20, top 50, top 100. It's just, it's the most mediocre film. Like that, that, and I say mediocre from the point of view that it's just completely overrated. And I don't know, I, I, and I just don't understand why there's, there's no nostalgic value to this film from what I can tell, you know, maybe it was shown on TV a lot when people were growing up, maybe that's it, but you know, it, it doesn't tell a story of like, you know, something like Schindler's List where it's like an important historical story. It doesn't have anything like that about it. It's just it's just this pretty normal story of a guy wrongly convicted and he tries to escape from prison. Like, who gives a shit? I'm sorry. But like, you know, I just uh, and the film and from a filmmaking standpoint, not even from a plot standpoint, but from a filmmaking standpoint, 
there's nothing special about this film at all. Uh, nothing at all special about it. And that's, yeah, I'll stop ranting now because I'll just get worked up. Um, okay, so They Shoot Pictures has it at 473. Um, and even that feels a little high. I, the only thing I can think about, uh, there's a, uh, there is a thread on uh, Reddit, a comment thread a few weeks back that where people were joking about how Godfather used to be number one, and then a bunch of people that like Lord of the Rings, uh, just to kind of troll the Godfather, gave it a one star so that it would lower the rating down. Um, and then a bunch of, I mean, I'm sorry, not Lord of the Rings, Dark Knight. And then a bunch of people that like the Dark Knight, uh, that like the Godfather, gave the Dark Knight a one star rating just to, to knock that down. And then the result was that Shawshank Redemption <laughs> got benefited from that. The least that. offensive one won. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's no logical explanation for this to be number one all time. There, there's, we're not going to find it here in this podcast. There's, there's no logical explanation other than it's the film that like, I just feel like people have seen for one way or another, like a lot of people see it and they know about it and it, they just, it's like maybe just enough to sort of give it a high rating. But it, there, I mean, I'm not, I, <laughs> it, this is one of those ones that doesn't make any sense. Like, of course it's not the best film ever made. Like <laughs> it's not, there's no, there's no world in which this is the best film ever. So um, I, I think this is just going to be a head scratcher for me. And that might come on mystery. It is uh, a 4.4 4 on Letterboxd, which is high. Yeah. Whatever so, reason. Uh, I thought if there was going to be one that would be four or under, this would be it. But no, obviously not. No, Matrix was the closest. Um, yeah. Now, here's what I will, I will say about Shawshank Redemption. It is the second best prison adaption by Stephen King um, that Frank Darabont ever directed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's you're not wrong <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean it's fine it, it, it's you know we've talked about this on other podcasts about inoffensive movies you know this is one i mean it's got like it's it's melodramatic it's it's got good scenes the acting's good i mean it's 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 almost like a checkbox movie like it does everything pretty well it just doesn't do anything great mm-hmm. like that's how i just kind of feel about it. like everything's competent and you know, it's it's fine. It's it's fun <laughs> for see, what it's it is. Just, it's just like a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Like it's just it's fine. Nobody's gonna give out about it, but it's it, it. Nobody should be writing home about it at the same time. It's just a just a big scoop of vanilla. You know, there's, that's the finest of the flavors. There's a there's this uh, thing. It's it's an outdated reference now because it's not as common anymore. But 20 years ago, you know, home telemarketing was a big deal. So like you, like literally, people calling into your home trying to sell you like medicines and just random things yeah there was this kind of uh joke or or kind of you know observation that the best people at those jobs were the ones that stuck to the script exactly they they took no liberties with the script it was like you know if if the people that were the best at that job are the ones that never deterred from the script and this feels to me kind of like that like it's like a it's a movie that's like there's there's not a lot of creativity there's not a lot of liberties taken it's just like straight down the line of like kind of making a movie uh, and, and, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's the film equivalent to, uh, a successful sale of, uh, calling into someone's home and selling some medicine, <laughs> telemarketing. <laughs> and do we feel, I'm just trying to try and make sense to why a, it's so high and I can, I can kind of, like, we, uh, this is the problem with, with things like IMDb sort of user scored lists, because 
like you said, any like the internet is such a vast place. You can get ten thousand people together to go and download something if you don't like it. So, you know, trying to find a reason for it being so high is kind of tricky because of that. What you were saying before about you know the Godfather and the Dark Knight duking it out, but it's not even that. It's like like you'll meet people and they'll say, "Oh, my favorite film is The Shawshank Redemption." And you know, I've had this I've had this conversation with people in work. We've talked about films people like, and people always bring up Shawshank Redemption and Fight Club and The Green Mile and stuff like that. And it's at the point where I'm kind of thinking, is this almost like an echo chamber where people look at IMDb and they see Shawshank Redemption's number one, highest rated, so they watch it. And because it's not a bad movie, they kind of go, oh yeah, I understand why this is number one. This wasn't bad. And it just kind of sort of becomes an echo chamber where People watch it because it's number one, and because the film doesn't suck, they just assume, okay, yeah, that's number one, and then they give it a good review as well, and it just kind of goes on and on forever in that kind of sense. Yeah, and I could see that, especially since like Letterbox, which is a little bit more recent, it doesn't have it nearly as high. It still has it high, higher than I would, but you know that could still be like leftover from IMDb, like, oh yeah, that's my favorite. So on Letterbox, I put it as a five. See, but I think the Letterbox and IMDb debate is kind of more. I think IMDb is just a bit more for the casual viewer, mm-hmm. which is why you'll normally see foreign films, uh, art films, sort of ranked a lot lower because they just get less votes compared to like Letterboxd. Like, we'll talk about the top 10 or top 20 um, Letterbox films in a moment, but if we just take one from that list, uh, The Human Condition Part 3. Like, I just, I, it's definitely not in the top 250 of IMDb. I, I'd stake my reputation on it, and I would be surprised if the overall rating was, was any, any way above an 8.5. Probably more to, like, an 8.1 or an 8.2. Um, so, yeah, I think Letterboxd is sort of geared more towards people who... I don't want to make this sound elitist, but people who sort of take film a bit more seriously, um, whereas IMDb is just a bit more casual. And it wasn't always that way. Obviously, IMDb used to be the place to go. Um, but obviously, I think with Letterboxd coming out and sort of getting... Even though Letterboxd has probably been out for about 10 years itself, it's just gotten a lot more popular in the past sort of five or six that it seems to be the place to go for for sort of you know cinema lovers to go and, and rank and review their films versus IMDb. Yeah. Um I think, yeah, I think it just, you know, we, we've kind of been touching on this a little bit now throughout the, throughout this whole conversation, but I just feel like there's something that happens when you're 14, 15, 16, if you're the kind of person that likes movies, d- d- regardless of what type, like going to see Transformers in theater or whatever, if you're the kind of person that just chooses that as a hobby, at some point you're going to see a movie that's going to rock your world a little bit, right? And I think that what which movie that is, is, is fairly represented in this list in different ways, right? Yeah, for, for sure. And I think this kind of goes into what we've talked about before with, um, with bias, with rankings, and not just, not just IMDb. I think, I think Rotten Tomatoes kind of has the, has the opposite problem of IMDb, because obviously IMDb is for people who have just watched a film and they think it's great and they want to rank it or they think it's crap and they want to unrank it. And you get a lot of recency bias with that because obviously mainly people are going to watch current stuff. And then Rotten Tomatoes on the on the sort of opposite spectrum, if you're looking at a review for a classic film on Rotten Tomatoes, so like if you look up the review for like a Bergman film, it's nearly always going to be 100% because you're, you're going to be reading a 
a um, a review from someone now reviewing a movie from the past. It was not a contemporary review. Mm-hmm. And if the film wasn't good in the past, nobody's going to be watching it now. Mm-hmm. So you get bias on either end of the spectrum. So something like, you know, they shoot pictures is probably a, a really good sort of litmus test for where a film should really be because it's such a huge database of, of sort of aggregated reviews. It's better than looking at something like, um, you know, like um, IMDb or even Rotten Tomatoes. And I've actually just even, I've just noticed a, a bit of an issue at IMDb that I don't think we we've addressed. And that is how IMDb even do their top 250. It's not just by score. You have to have a minimum threshold of how many votes a film can have. Because obviously if I released a, a film and I was the only one who reviewed it and I reviewed a 10 out of 10, it's not going to become the best film on IMDb. Mm-hmm. And I've just noticed the problem while I was looking because I mentioned I wanted to, I was curious about what score The Human Condition 3 is. The Human Condition 3 has an 8.8 on IMDb. The Matrix is an 8.7. Yet the Matrix is in the list, and the Human Condition isn't because the Matrix has over a million rank, um, over a million people have ranked the Matrix, or so it's only five thousand yeah. have ranked Human Condition. Yeah. So I think that's kind of, I think that's probably a big sway. The more it's not really about recency as well as popularity is going to sway you in, in in a direction as well. So the most popular films that have an artistic or interesting angle to them. Essentially so, yes. That's where it seems to be. And then you have weird outliers like, like Shawshank Redemption, which isn't even doesn't really have a lot of artistic merits. Um it's just a pretty it's a pretty mediocre well, from a filmmaking perspective, it's just fine. Um but yeah, a lot of time it just seems to be if you're anyway artistically inclined but also super mainstream, then you tend to you tend to end up sort of more towards the top end of the list. In that case I'm surprised there's not more representation from the MCU on there, but um well, I think there is if you look. Well, see, the problem again with MCU is that you get all the DC boo boys going and rating at one. That's true. So this again, it's there's so much bias involved with 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 lists and with rankings that involve people scoring them and people having the free will to score them whatever the effect they want. It just it's it skews lists entirely. So I think the point we can kind of make from this from this ranking and sort of talking about these rankings is you just can't take lists like this at face value because there's always going to be some kind of underlying bias that skews things one way or another. Yeah. It's so if IMDB skewed more toward watchability as a gross blanketing statement there, um, you know, the, should I just quickly run down the 20 for... I was going to say, yeah, let's let's run down the top 20s for both They Shoot Pictures and for Letterboxd. They Shoot Pictures is going to be a good one to look at because it's going to be a lot of... Just, I, I, I'm sure most of the people who do these lists are, are critics or scholars in some degree, so exactly. we're probably going to get a lot more representation of what's important or what's you know more artful. And then Letterboxd will be interesting because, again, it's public, forum-based, but... It's more for people who are watching maybe a bit more obscure stuff. So yeah, we'll run through the day shoot pictures first just to see. So we know for, we know ourselves before we start that we're only going to see Seven Samurai and The Godfather Part 1 in this list. So let's see what else is showing up there. And, and then just as like a one-sentence kind of background, if we're thinking watchability on IMDb, they shoot pictures is probably a similar bias, except for this is somebody putting a public stamp on their top 100. So they're gonna, their bias is going to be towards being seen as a reputable critic, right? So there's going to be a little bit of a bias there around making sure you include Citizen Kane, for example, right? Regardless of what you think about the movie, yeah. like that's probably where the bias is on a list like this, right? 
Um, and so it's going to be number 10, number 20 is uh, Siga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera, okay. 1929 Russian uh, film. Then number 19 is Igmar Bergman's Persona from 1966. Number 18 is Carl Theodore Dreyer's uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928. Probably the best lead performance in a film ever. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, number 17 is uh, Jean Vigo's La Atalante. Yes, great film. 1934, yep. Number 16 is Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. Okay, interesting. Uh, number 15 is uh, something that uh, Zach has mentioned a couple of times here today, is Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver uh, from 1976. Then number 14 is Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin from 1925. Number 13 is Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, 1948. That's, an emo that's a film, again, that lists emotional reaction. Definitely, definitely. Uh, um, couple directors on this next one, but the one that's first billed is Stanley Donnan for uh, Singing in the Rain from 1952, coming in at number 12. I, th I think it's interesting that that's so high. Um, it's, it's high in sight and sound as well. It's in the top 20 for sight and sound, top 250 as well. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's good, but that's, anyways, that's interesting. Um, number 11 is Francis Ford Coppola with Apocalypse Now. Uh, it does not, mention, does not mention which cut, so I'm assuming they're talking about theatrical cut, which is probably a little bit... The superior cut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 1979. Then we start in the top 10. So we've already mentioned uh, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai from 1954. Right after that is Kurosawa's uh, muse, John Ford, with his sort of... Uh, uh, the film that he's most known for, The Searchers from 1956. Then, um, for me, one of my favorite movies, the film that actually got me into silent films, number eight, is F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. Mm, great film. Yeah, 1927. I feel like that should be a must-see. Uh, it just completely breaks down, I think, what most people assume the silent film is. Yeah, is. for sure. It's so The camera work and the editing and the sort of clever effects is incredible in that film. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, we mentioned number seven, The Godfather, uh, from Francis Ford Coppola in 1972. Then we get into uh, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, 1963, coming in at number six. Um, I have no problem that being the best movie about filmmaking. Uh, Fair, yeah. No problem. Debatable whether or not I put it that high, but anyways, it's, it's certainly, I understand why. Um, then we get into a lot of uh, filmmakers' favorite filmmaker, uh, Yasujiro Ozu. Uh, with Tokyo Story. Great from film, again. Another emotional yeah. film. Yeah. Coming at number five. Um, probably what I assume is going to be a more controversial one for people that are uh, in John Renoir's Rules of the Game, coming in at number four. I never I never got that. I always thought The Grand Delusion was better. Uh, yeah. I, honestly, me too. But anyways, yeah. well, what do we know? <laughs> but, um, our, our, you know, I, it's a really good movie. Um, for sure. But just if you think about how many people had to vote it high for it to be number four of all time. Mm, yeah. Um, then a little bit of Kubrick love. Um, number three is going to be 2001 Space Odyssey from 1968. And then 
um, Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock's um, uh, film Vertigo. Again, uh, or it's not again, 1958. We we just happen to have seen a lot of movies from 1958 in the film club. It's kind of funny. So they many. <laughs> yeah, it's a good year for film. Uh, that's number two. And then the the uh, almost unanimous number one movie of all time by critics is Citizen Kane from Orson Welles from 1941. So there we go. It's interesting the films in that list. I know I know the uh, sight and sound top 250 nearly nearly off by heart. Um, a lot of the films you mentioned, I'm pretty sure they're all the exact same films that are in Sight and Sound, the top 20 of that, just in a slightly different order. Yeah. Um, so there seems to be obviously a major consensus. Obviously, Sight and Sound is obviously sort of done very similarly to um, two-day shoot pictures. They get like hundreds of critics and filmmakers and everything like that to put together their top 10s and do a weighted scoring and everything like that. And they, they do it every 10 years um, they get together and do a new ranking. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm, I suppose in a way I'm not really surprised it's ended up being the same films, but yeah, different, slightly different ranking. So I'm interested to see what Letterbox is going to be because I think it's going to be completely different. You were correct. Um, <laughs> Chris, you did a great job pronouncing all those directors' names. Uh, I can't do that um, unless you want me to butcher about seven different languages. So uh, <laughs> we're just going to go with the titles. Um, number 20 is Schindler's List. Okay. Number 19 is Goodfellas. Number 18 is The Human Condition Part 1. And we've already mentioned Part 3 is on there. Part 2 is number 43. I went ahead and checked. Okay, cool. So yeah. they're all in top 50. Um, the Dark Knight is number 17. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is number 16. Okay. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is 15. Uh, Yee Yee is 14. Um, Adam's favorite movie, The Shawshank Redemption, is 13. Um, the four-hour Brighter Summer Day is number 12. Um, high and Low is number 11. Uh, Spirited Away is the highest um, animated film at number 10. The Human Condition Part 3 is number 9. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the actual name of this, but it's uh, Spanish for, I think it's Spanish for a dog's will. Uh, o Otto Da, I don't know. It, it's some movie I've never heard of. I've never heard of that <laughs> film. Um, number seven you know? is 12 Angry Men. Number six is Seven Samurai. Uh, number five is The Godfather Part Two. Number four is Harakira. Is that how you say that? Uh, Harakiri. Harakiri. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, number three is The Godfather. Number two is Come and See. And number one is Parasite. Okay. Okay. Right. This is That's a, such a super interesting list because... You got a lot, there's a lot of stuff in there that's also in the IMDb um, top 20, like The Godfathers, The Dark Knight, you mentioned, uh, Goodfellas. There's a few, there's, there's a bit of overlap. And then you have almost the kind of films that are in the Criterion subreddit echo chamber, which is Edward Yang, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is Yee Yee and Brighter Summer's Day. So you have a lot of, and then Come and See as well, which I assume is a lot of recency bias because Criterion released that so recently and it was a film that was not available for so long. A lot of people have now jumped on it and seen it and therefore have given it a really good rating. So that's super interesting. 75,000 members have seen it. I'm actually surprised at that number for Come and See. That's yeah. actually really high. See, it was it was just one of those films that was wanted for so long. I'm sure just so many people have bought it. And obviously now that there's a Blu-ray available for it, I'm sure there's plenty of high-definition illegal streams available for it too. Um, that's such an interesting list. It's so random. 
Yeah, I yeah. love Parasite too. That was in my top two of 2019. I absolutely love the film, but Same. I was I was just so surprised by number one. Like, I love. I, I it's not my favorite um, Bong Joon Ho film. Um, we'll actually get to that here shortly. Um, but it's great film. I just like number one. Like <laughs> a film yeah. that's two years old. But it's funny, like the two. Yeah, like two of my the, my top two favorite films of 2019 are both in there. Um, the Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is probably it's what well, it's definitely one of my favorite films of the last ten years. Um, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. Um, and Parasite was my second favorite of that year. But yeah, <laughs> to be in the top twenty of all time is probably a little bit contentious. And again, it's a lot of recency bias coming in there too. So just as a as a quick tangent, but the to the point of like who's using and kind of who's watching, you know, who's using these platforms and who's rating. Uh, that film you mentioned, A Dog's Will, uh, Zach, is yeah. A, is a Brazilian movie from 2000, I believe, or 2001. Yeah, 2000. And and, and this this brings up a point that I mean, actually, I've never heard of it. I have to, I have to buy. It. But it brings up a point where it's interesting. You know, imagine what would happen if either China, India, or Brazil was really active on IMDb or Letterboxd, right? You see that with IMDb though. There's a lot of Bollywood films in the top 250. There's about three or four that you know nobody outside of India has seen it. So. Yeah, that's it's definitely if there was if there was a lot of people from those countries using it a lot more, I, I think it would be a hell of a lot more skewed than what it already is. Yeah. So, anyways, that's you know this is it just this is a Western biased list, right? Compiled from people that that, that watch these movies and 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 sort of learn about like the history of film and what's interesting and important. Um, but I mean, anyways, I'm describing my worldview, so I, I like these movies. I guess I'm I'm not using that as a as a as a you know derogatory thing. It just yeah. just kind of shows what's going into it, I guess. No, that was interesting to see the comparison because, yeah, like your the one you had your list for the they shoot pictures is pretty much like that's like a critics list. That's like if you were an artist or a film historian, that's like. Yeah, you're gonna pick those movies because they're they're so important to the history of cinema, um, and I'm surprised maybe one or two are not in there. <laughs> Night at a Hunter, cough cough, um, but <laughs> I'm sure they just I'm sure it just missed out. Um, and then obviously, your list from Letterboxd is just it's just very random. It's either super popular films, like even like Into the Spider Verse, which I think is great. It's probably the best animated film in the last ten years. It's a really really good film. It's not in the top twenty best films ever made. Like that's be that's be real, and then obviously then Parasite and and things like that in there too, and then obviously IMDb just seems to be sort of very purely mainstream outside of like Seven Samurai, seems to be like. And as far as Asian movies go, that's probably about as mainstream as you're going to get <laughs> Seven Samurai. And... Yeah, except except for like maybe like Studio Ghibli films. Yeah. In terms of live action, then yeah, yeah, Seven Samurai is probably one that most people have heard of. Whereas all the rest of the movies on their li- on that list, pretty much everyone has seen all of them except for maybe a handful. Like I was, like you've probably, I think, did you guys say you've seen every film on that list on the IMDb top twenty? Mm-hmm. You probably did too, and I was missing maybe two or three. So, you know, a lot of people have seen these movies, so it probably attests to their popularity. Yeah. Cool. Well, look, before we wrap up uh, this special episode, um, we thought it'd be fun just to put together our own sort of top ten films. So we're just going to go through our own like top ten lists. We're not going to go too in depth as to why we think they're in the top ten. We are going to put these up on the website, and um, they'll be up shortly after this episode airs, uh, where we might go a little bit more in depth as to why we picked them. 
Um, but yeah, we're just going to give our own top tens just to see if we can maybe compare them to any of the other lists we've been talking about. I think my list is probably going to be more closer to the they shoot pictures one than the other two. Um, yeah, that, anyone anyone want to volunteer to go first? Um, yeah, because y'all will probably uh, <laughs> we'll get mine out of the way. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to start. I, I did cheat a little bit on my number three pick. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there. I couldn't make a decision. So um, I'm going to start from 10 and go up. Uh, my number 10 was Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. Okay. Um, number nine was Memories of Murder. Um, number eight, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. Number seven is There Will Be Blood. Number six is Tremors. Okay. I, I had to look at the face. I just had to say. Uh, number five <laughs> is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, number four is John Carpenter's The Thing. My number three, I couldn't pick between Apocalypse Now and The Godfather, so they kind of split number three. Um, my number two is The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, and my number one is John Carpenter's Halloween. Okay. That's... There's no bad films on that. Well, Tremors is maybe questionable. That's kind of one of those so good it's bad, or so bad it's good. I, I, we should have a podcast about that because I actually believe it's just a legitimately great film. Not like a so good, it's not so bad it's good. I think it's just legitimately great. I, I, I genuinely haven't seen Tremors since I was a kid. So it's one of those ones I need to rewatch. Especially now that Arrow have like a, a release of it. It's one of those ones I definitely need to rewatch because I think, actually, I'm going to buy this this weekend because I know my dad would love to watch it as well because we watched it together when I was a kid. So mm-hmm. I know that you would love 4K to watch transfer it too. looks great. Yeah, so I think I think Tremors one I need to rewatch. Um, well, I actually have one in common with you, uh, Zach, on my list. So I'll, I'll go next if that's okay with you, Chris. Um, so <clears throat> number ten is Abbas Kiristami's Where's the Friend's House. Um, number nine is Agnes Varda's Le Bonheur. Uh, number eight is John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, number seven is Paul and Pressburger's The Red Shoes. Number six is David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Uh, number five is Ingmar Bergman's Persona. Uh, number four is uh, Fritz Lang's M. Uh, number three, uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Uh, number two, uh, Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. And number one is the best film ever made, which is Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. So we did have one in common, Zach. We did. I, I'm actually surprised. <laughs> God, bless, God bless Halloween. It's so good. Now, will Chris finish it up and also have Halloween on his list? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, yeah. Anyways, we, we can we can discuss more of these later. Uh, or we can, uh, if anybody listening wants to comment and ask what, what the hell, that's fine um, for any of these movies. But uh, it's a big mix for me. Uh, number 10 is going to be Godard's A Woman is a Woman. Brilliant. Love it. Uh, number nine is going to be Monty Python's Life of Brian. Okay. Uh, number eight is going to be Wosichet's uh, Haas's Saragossa Manuscript. Never heard of it, but okay. Um, yeah, number seven is Goodbye Lennon, uh, which, well, anyways, I guess, obviously, I'm is encouraging people to Daniel, watch it. Is Daniel Brühl in that film? Or am I thinking um, of a different film? I don't know off the top of my head. It, it's it's about the kid who his, his mom can't uh, afford to have another shock to her system. She's kind of sick. And she wakes up from a coma um, right when the, the Berlin Wall fell, and, and she's kind of pro-East German. And, so it and, is a German film. Uh-huh. Yeah, I looked it up. Yeah, Daniel Brun is in that. I'm pretty sure I've seen that film. Anyways, it's, it's super sweet and uh, um, probably emotionally manipulative, but I'm, I'm a sucker for that stuff. Um, uh, next is, is a little bit of a cheat. I'm including uh, Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, even though I wouldn't put the movie in the top 10. Um, the, the TV series is there, so I'm going to cheat and just put the movie there. 
uh, so people watch the the TV show. Um, then we get down to uh, discreet charm with the bourgeoisie because I had to put a Boonwell film in there. Uh, I love everything that guy does. And then uh, finishing up is uh, Spike Jones adaptation. Uh, and then two films by Kurosawa. Uh, number three is Ikiru. Uh, uh, with uh, and then you know Rashomon is my number one. Uh, but then number two coming in is the Decalogue series from Kishlovsky. So two TV series in your top ten movies. <laughs> take it take it with one 10 hour movie the decalogue is one 10 hour movie i guess yeah i, I think uh adam was the only one who didn't cheat on his list That's yeah right. you guys <laughs> come on no I, I i was i was having such a struggle putting together 10 like I, I kept at so many films i'm sure you guys did as well you've it was, it was it's so hard to put together a 10 um and then you're trying to be maybe not be you know not not try and lump too much of the same thing in like i was saying to the guys before we started recording that if i was to do my top 10 i could have just done like 10 bergman films and uh, that that would have been pretty boring if i just listed off 10 bergman films um so i I did try and mix it up a little bit cool look this this episode was a lot of fun um i hope it was a lot of fun to listen to as well and it didn't come off too pretentious and we're gonna have be having more of these special episodes come up i hope you enjoyed uh the interview we did with deaf crocodile a couple of weeks ago that was a lot of fun for us and we're hoping to have more of that kind of stuff going forward as well um yeah for now i think we'll wrap it up guys um yeah thanks everyone thank you